Luke 24. We're almost to the end. Made it to the last chapter here. Two more weeks in Luke. It's been a long journey. It's been a great journey. And we are about to wrap it up here. So Luke 24, 1 to 35. It's on page 885 if you're using the Pew Bible. I would invite you to stand together for the reading of God's word. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words, and returning to the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that he, they, they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. 
for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, that you would open our eyes to see Christ. God, that our hearts would burn within us as the scriptures are interpreted, as we see the risen Christ, as we experience him in our lives. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. I've shared a little bit of my testimony before with you all. Uh, I grew up in a very nominally Christian home where I neither understood nor embraced the person and work of Christ in the gospel. And when I went away to college, I had already bought into the lies of the world, hook, line, and sinker. Before you do you was a saying, it was already a thing. Before believe in yourself was the motto of a generation, my generation was already practicing that, and a lot of good it did us. And before YOLO was a thing, we were already YOLOing, living it up and enjoying the pleasures that this world has to offer. Then I heard the gospel very clearly for the first time on April Fool's Day, go figure, 2000. And I had a radical paradigm shift. My whole you do you, believe in yourself, YOLO house of cards came tumbling down. I think it's interesting because what happened to me is the opposite of some of the horror stories that we hear and what I think many Christian parents fear. They fear their kids going away to college and getting bombarded with the lies of the world and walking away from the faith of their family, the faith of their childhood. So I want to encourage the parents among us. I want to encourage the young people among us this morning. This passage is a word of comfort to all of us And it's a reminder of God's sovereign hand in saving us and keeping us. And there's also a reminder of the part that we have to play. Us not being pulled away from Christ by the world's lies, whether young folks going away to college and leaving home for the first time, or any of us when the trials and temptations and tribulations of life abound, This is something that can and must be guarded against by all of us. We'll look 
this morning at our, our responsibility to persevere in our faith as we remember, recognize, and rehearse. Remember, recognize, and rehearse. Those are the three things that we're going to be looking at this morning. And if you're looking for a big idea, if you're a note taker, the big idea is experiencing the resurrected Christ changes everything. Experiencing the resurrected Christ changes everything. Simply put, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the single most important moment in the history of the world. And for good reason, some of the most thoughtful and helpful apologetics work that has been done has been done on the validity of the resurrection. Yet, as we see in our passage this morning, bare facts don't save anyone. Look at the disciples' disbelief, even when they should have known better. If we could prove the resurrection of Jesus beyond reasonable doubt to people today in our culture, in our society, do you think it would change their hearts? Do you think the religious leaders of Jesus' day who paid a large sum of money to the soldiers in order to cook up a story about Jesus, or about the disciples stealing Jesus' body, do you think those guys knew what had already happened? Of course they did. Yet they refused to believe it, the truth that was right before their eyes. We must be on guard against the deceitfulness of sin and recognize that it is by grace and grace alone that any of us are allowed to come to Christ and to embrace him by faith. So let's look at our first point. We must remember the risen Christ. Remember the risen Christ. Because we are prone to wander and to forget what Jesus has already promised to his people. We see that here in Luke's account of Jesus' resurrection in verses 1 to 12, as these faithful women gather at the tomb on Sunday morning in order to add the next round of spices to Jesus' body. But when they get there, what do they find? They find the stone rolled away and the tomb is empty. And it says in verse 4 that they were perplexed about this. They were perplexed about what had happened. And then it says that they were frightened and they bowed their faces to the ground in verse 5 when two angels appeared before them in this dazzling apparel. Tim Chester, in his book, A Meal with Jesus, I shared that before, uh, several, probably a couple months ago with you, he, a uh, book called A Meal with Jesus, he walks through Luke's gospel and all the different times that Jesus encounters people over, over meals at the table and kind of all the different dynamics of that and how it plays out. Uh, his last chapter in the book is on chapter 24, very fittingly, and he has a helpful analysis of the three sets of encounters that happen here in chapter 24. The first set of encounters is here in verses 1 through 12 uh, with the resurrection. The second encounter is on the Emmaus Road in verses 13 to 35. And then the third encounter is what James is going to lead us through next Sunday, verses 36 to 49, when Jesus then appears to his disciples. So in this chapter, 
Chester lays out five different things that happen in each of these encounters. Each of these three encounters, there's basically this framework. There's five things that happen. The first is that the people are bewildered. The second is that they are rebuked by Jesus or the angels, the angels and then, and then Jesus. So they're rebuked. The third is that they're taught Christ's words. They're taught the scriptures. Fourth is that they're told the message of God's word, specifically that Christ must suffer and die. And then fifth, the result is that they go and tell others. So the first thing here, the bewilderment of these women, it's followed by a rebuke from the angels in the form of a question here in the second half of verse five. Chris just talked about this. He, the question was, why do you seek the living among the dead? In other words, he says to them, you're looking in the wrong place. You're looking among the dead, and you're looking for the wrong person. Jesus is not dead. He is not here, but has risen. Then the rebuke continues in the command to remember. In verse 6, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So this rebuke to these women is that you've forgotten. You've forgotten what Jesus has already so plainly told you many times over and over and over. And this is the the third and the fourth thing from Chester's framework there, that they're reminded, they're told the words of Scripture. They're told that the Christ must suffer and die, and that's something that Jesus had repeatedly said to his disciples as they were journeying to Jerusalem and even after they arrived in Jerusalem. And we sit here and say, how could they forget? The one who had not only foretold his own resurrection, but who had raised Lazarus from the dead and proclaimed, I am the resurrection and the life. Well, after this rebuke from the angels, we're told in verse 8 that they remembered his words. Then they go and they do number five. They go and they tell others. The women who are named here in verse 10, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them, they, they go and they tell the apostles all of the things that had happened. And though there is no direct comment from Luke here in verse 11, it would seem that this is to be taken as, as a rebuke of the disciples as well. In verse 11, it says, but these words seem to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Again, we sit here and say, really? After all you guys have witnessed, demons being cast out of people, sick people being healed, dead people being raised, fishes and loaves being multiplied to feed thousands, storms being calmed, the curtain in the temple being torn in two when Jesus died. After witnessing all of those things, you guys still don't believe? And then the one that we least expect to respond positively After denying Jesus just two and a half days earlier, Peter has to see for himself. So he runs to the tomb and he sees that it is true. Christ is risen. 
Can you imagine the relief that Peter felt? Knowing that though he had denied his master, his master had not denied him, but he had conquered the grave so that Peter's unbelief and the rest of the disciples' unbelief might be conquered. And this is good news for all of us. We are all like Peter and the rest of the disciples. We've been told and we've been reminded over and over of the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Every Sunday that we gather together for worship, every time that we crack our Bibles open and read them, there are reminders on every page of Scripture. Yet we also forget. And we need reminders often, daily. But it's not just a mind problem, right? It's not just failing to to recall information. We're going to see this in the next account. The second thing is we must recognize the redeeming Christ. Recognize the redeeming Christ. Because our hearts are too easily blinded and hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We see that here starting in verse 13. It's the late afternoon, uh, just before evening. These disciples are walking on the road. They're going to a village named Emmaus, which is seven miles from Jerusalem. They're talking with each other about the things that had happened. And while they're talking and discussing these things, Jesus himself draws near and begins to walk with them. And then notice what happens in verse 16. It says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And we might ask, why? Why would Jesus do this? What is his purpose here? Well, the first thing we must acknowledge, as we've been emphasizing a lot over these past several chapters, is that God is sovereignly at work both in the events surrounding Jesus' death and burial and resurrection and in the way that individuals are enabled to respond to him. As we've emphasized many times, we have to see the balance between God's sovereignty on the one hand and our responsibility on the other hand. The people who crucified Jesus were accountable for their actions, though they were planned beforehand by God. We saw that in Acts 2 and Acts 4. And we are accountable for how we respond, even though our responses are not made apart from the sovereign will of God. And that's what we see here in verse 16. Well, have you ever witnessed a birthday party with a bunch of kids around and there's a piñata hanging up, right? And the kids are blindfolded and they get up there whacking with the stick, right? Crazy scene. Well, that is kind of what we are like, right? We, in this story, we're like this. We're like the blindfolded kid just swinging wildly at the piñata. And then the adults come and they step in, right? And they, they guide you, they point you in the right direction and get you a little closer, trying not to get hit, right? Well, notice what Jesus does here. Notice how Jesus comes in and how Jesus engages us. He engages these disciples in conversation as they ask him in verse 18. 
he asked, well, he asked them in verse 17, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other? And it says that they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? <clears throat> this would be like someone coming to Oshkosh for business during the week of EAA, someone who's not from, you know, not from Wisconsin, maybe from, from out of state, who doesn't, doesn't even know that EAA is a thing. And you're, you meet them at a, at a restaurant and you're like, oh, have you, you know, have you got, have you been enjoying the, the planes and the sky and all the noise and, and all the hustle and bustle going on? And they're like, what are you talking about? What's, what's EAA? <laughs> That's kind of what it's like for, there's all this commotion, right? There's been all these things going on in Jerusalem. And these guys are like, how could you have missed this, right? And obviously they still don't know that this is Jesus, but it, it would be unheard of that this, all these things that have gone on would not have been known by this man who's traveling on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. So they go on here in verses 19 to 24 to describe to Jesus who they had hoped Jesus was and what he would do. They, they begin to tell him uh, in verse 19, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in, in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. In verse 21, notice what they say. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. This is their bewilderment, as Chester talks about. They're, in verse 17, they're sad. And then they have this misguided hope. Verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Notice what they're doing. They're, they're leaving Jerusalem, right? It's all over. They're heading back to Emmaus. The their hopes are dashed. And we have to recognize that this is a misguided hope. It's a misguided political hope. Jesus was not the hope of Israel alone, but the hope of the nations. This is a constant refrain throughout the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah talks about the Lord's servant. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7 God says to his servant, he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. The servant is, is speaking of Christ and pointing forward to Christ. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. Notice the parallel there with Jesus reading in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4 kind of that major kind of paradigm of his earthly ministry. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This passage is actually quoted several times in the New Testament to show that Christ is the fulfillment of this promise of hope for the nations. I think this here strikes at the heart of any types of claims of Christian nationalism from believers in any country. It's not just something unique to America. There's a temptation of believers in any country to think that, well, if we become Christians, right, if we trust in Jesus, then somehow he will come and, and heal our country and he'll redeem us and he'll do all these things and he'll make us this great power, right? Jesus came to redeem people from, redeem them out of every tribe and language and people and nation, 
So just as they, these guys struggled with this, we can just as easily be blinded by the things that we might hope Jesus will do for our political or our national salvation. But the messianic deliverance plan has nothing to do with earthly kingdoms. It has nothing to do with the politics of our present day. It's been true for Christians throughout church history. The hope of the gospel, the hope of of being redeemed by Christ is not that he will save our nation. It's that he will save a people unto himself. Paul makes this clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we are not only blinded by our own sin and our own earthly hopes, we are also blinded by the God of this world, who is Satan. He has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So people put their hopes in earthly things. They're blinded by those things. They're also blinded by Satan. But what does God do? God removes that veil, as Paul talks about in in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. He removes that veil and allows us to see. He shines light into the darkness. He shines in our hearts and gives the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this this is what is about to happen to these disciples as they're walking on the road. Jesus rebukes them in verses 25 and 26. He said, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then he goes on to shine the light of God into the darkness of their hearts as he interprets to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. If there is one unrecorded conversation in scripture that I wish I could have heard and have been a part of, it's this one here, hands down. How great would it have been to have heard Jesus explain for this seven-mile journey, walking slowly with these sad disciples as he explains to them all the things in the Scripture, how the whole Old Testament points to him. But the cool thing is, for us, that in a sense, we do get to be a part of this conversation, don't we? J.C. Ryle says, Let it be a settled principle in our minds in reading the Bible that Christ is the central son of the whole book, S-U-N. So long as we keep him in view, we shall never greatly err in our search for spiritual knowledge. Once losing sight of Christ, we shall find the whole Bible dark and full of difficulty. 
The key of Bible knowledge is Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, when we read our Bibles, we really do see Christ in every page of Scripture, whether directly or indirectly. It all reveals Christ to us. That is how for us here today, when the, with the written word of God that we get to hold in our hands, we have the scripture interpreted to us. It's not some hidden, unrecorded conversation like these two disciples had here on the road to Emmaus. But it is through the plain and ordinary reading of God's word as the Holy Spirit reveals Christ to us. That's the first way that we recognize the redeeming Christ. The second way that we recognize the redeeming Christ is seen in verses 28 to 32. As Jesus and these two disciples approach Emmaus, they urge him to stay with them because it is near evening and it's dangerous for someone to be traveling alone on the road at night. And again, they still don't know who Jesus is. So they enter the home and as they're sitting at the table, look at verse 30. It says, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Their eyes are opened as the bread is blessed and broken and given to them. Now this is most scholars would agree this is not a direct, this is not saying this is the Lord's Supper. This is not a, a direct account of, of what was done earlier. But there are some parallels, I think, that are really helpful. Um, I think this is a picture of what happens when we do partake in the Lord's Supper. We talked about this last week. That there is a spiritual recognition of Christ our Redeemer every time that we partake in the Lord's Supper together. So there are two ways then that our eyes are opened. Our eyes are opened by Christ through his word and through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And then the third way is by prayer, which Jesus performed as he broke the bread and he gave it to them. Word, sacrament, and prayer. These are what we call the ordinary means of grace. These are not flashy things. It's not fancy music or theatrics in our worship service that God is going to ultimately use to open the eyes of lost sinners for the first time or to open afresh the eyes of believers to see him more clearly. It is, whether it's for the first time or for the hundredth time or the thousandth time, the ordinary means of grace that God is going to use to open eyes. And I would argue that this Emmaus Road encounter between Jesus and these two disciples, that it is one of the greatest paradigms or one of the greatest frameworks for understanding evangelism and discipleship. And we actually see that here in our last section in verses 33 to 35, as we see that we must rehearse the risen and revealing Christ. Rehearse the risen and revealing Christ. Christ. <clears throat> a rehearsing has two different aspects. First, it's this acting out of something. So this acting out of word 
and sacrament is this rehearsal. Now it's wedding season. Uh, James and Lexi were just at a wedding yesterday. Uh, we've got Sam and Jess's wedding coming up in two weeks. Avery and Brody's wedding in three weeks. Michael and Lydia, the end of August. I don't know how many weeks it is. You got, I'm sure you guys know it's a lot of weeks, but it's coming up soon, right? And the Friday evening, or in Sam and Jess's case, the Saturday evening is the rehearsal. It's a time where everybody gets together and you need to go through all of the steps. You need to practice everything except for you may kiss your bride. You get to practice everything that's going to happen in the service. You're getting ready for the big day. And I think it's interesting, I've talked to some other people about this, how emotional the rehearsal can be. Sometimes there's actually more tears at the rehearsal than there is at the actual wedding. And I think that's because the joy of the wedding day is so overwhelming. I was telling some people uh, last Sunday at the particularization service, like, I, like everything in me wanted to cry, but I was just like so overwhelmed with all the different emotions that were going on. And I think that's kind of what it's like on a wedding day. Now, definitely there's like, there are a lot of tears sometimes, but sometimes there are more tears at the rehearsal, which is interesting. But I think maybe there's a parallel to what we're doing here. Sunday morning is the rehearsal for the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the rehearsal for our eternal worship service. And in the here and now, the emotions are so mixed. There is sadness and there are tears all mixed with joy and anticipation. But on that day, there will be only joy. So for now, we rehearse, right? We rehearse and we get ready for what is to come. The second aspect then of rehearsing is not just the acting out, but it's actually the retelling. And that's what we see here. These disciples, despite the danger that they had just urged Jesus to avoid by being on the road at night, they turn right around and they make the seven-mile journey back to Jerusalem. And my guess is they probably made that journey a little bit faster back to Jerusalem than they made it from Jerusalem to Emmaus as they're sad and talking to Jesus on the road as he opened the scriptures to, to them. They return to Jerusalem and they find the 11 and the rest gathered with them. And what did they do? They retold, they rehearsed what had happened to them on the road. Verse 34 they said, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road as, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Just like them, Christ has revealed himself to us and we are to go and to tell others. Again, that starts here as we gather for corporate worship. We gather together and we rehearse the death and the burial and the resurrection as we retell the story of the gospel week in and week out. And then we go out and we retell the story to the world so that people from every tribe and language and people and nation might be gathered into the people of God. This is the paradigm shift that the resurrection and that Emmaus Road account must create in the church and in our individual lives. If experiencing the resurrected Christ really changes everything, then we must be a changed people. We must no longer live as those who do not remember or recognize or rehearse the risen Christ. 
This is a great challenge for us this summer as a church. Last summer was really hard with COVID, with just things not being able to happen as they normally did with limited time together, with limited time out in the community. But now, as we have more opportunities to get out, as we have opportunities to invite people to church, to invite people to our summer conversations, to have backyard barbecues and invite our neighbors and friends who don't know Christ, as we seek to live out the reality of our changed lives because we have experienced the resurrected Christ, let us do this with joy and with expectation of what God is going to do. Livingstone Church, let us remember and recognize and rehearse the risen Christ together so that the world around us may have their eyes opened to see him for who he truly is. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the reality of Christ's resurrection. We thank you that He has opened our eyes to see him in the scriptures, that our eyes are opened in the breaking of bread and prayer. God, that we are reminded that we get to remember, that we recognize him, that we get to rehearse the gospel week in and week out. God, may the truth of the resurrection the truth of the resurrection life that we have in Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. May that truth change us. May that truth cause us to live out the realities of the gospel in the world outside of these walls. And may it be rehearsed and remembered and recognized here in our midst as well. As we sing, as we rehearse, as we give praise to your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.